Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the November 9th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of your other favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S and pre-order today. The Nodal Cash app makes earning crypto on your smartphone as easy as turning on your Bluetooth. Nodal Cash is private, secure, and available on iOS and Android. Visit nodal.io slash unchained. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash unchained to start earning Nodal Cash. Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first 30 days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's guest is Jose Fernandez de Ponte, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Blockchain, Crypto, and Digital Currencies at PayPal. Welcome, Jose. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm doing really well. Excited to have you. So let's start with your background. How did you come to be PayPal's general manager for blockchain, crypto, and digital currencies? Well, it's a, it's a long winding road. As I am Spanish, uh, born and raised. I've been mostly in payments, in, especially in emerging markets for the best part of the last uh, 20 years. Did a lot of work in Latin America, Middle East, Africa. And I've been in the Bay Area for the last uh, 10 years. And I started to get involved in, in crypto and digital currencies probably around 2015 or so. Uh, when we were doing back in, in my banking days, we were trying to make money movements across border using blockchain protocols. And that's what started to pique my, my interest. Uh, I've been as a, in PayPal for a few years now. Uh, and we started to get very, very involved in earnest in crypto on the PayPal side probably three to four years ago. Uh, we started uh, we started small, as as we think that most of us have started in, in this field, most of the research and engineering uh, activity. And then it started to grow and grow until we went public with our first retail product about a year ago. And then we created the, the unit that I have the privilege of running today, which is our uh, blockchain, crypto and digital currencies division. And so you say PayPal got started in earnest three or four years ago. What happened at that time to get PayPal interested? And why did PayPal ultimately decide to offer this ability to buy, sell, and pay with crypto? I think that what we saw is, is one of those combinations of events that every now and then happen at, at the same time, which is a technology that was getting ready for, for prime time, uh, incredible demand and interest on the, on the consumer side, and also where merchants were getting more interested into this as a, as a payment instrument. 
and also more, more clarity on the regulatory side. So when you combine those three things and you have a platform of the, of the size of PayPal where we have more than 400 million consumers and, and merchants, it's an incredibly uh, powerful pr- platform to be in. And, and we thought that it was part of our responsibility to, to help in making this uh, asset class more accessible to the public. So at that moment in time was when we were seeing that everything was come kind of together. If you remember, we were coming out of the crypto winter in, in 2017. So we were having this conversation at around 2019 or, or so, and things were getting more stable. And especially on our side, the technology was getting more and more ready. And so as um, people are probably aware, your CEO, Dan Shulman, famously said that after you guys offer that, users who had bought crypto on PayPal tended to log into the platform twice as often. And his expectation was that this would make the users more loyal and increase the amount of overall payments they made through the app. Have you seen that play out, that people who buy crypto on PayPal then actually just make more payments in general with PayPal? We see that it's actually it's, it's a, it's a two-way street, and that's one of the beauties of, of the platform. We see more engagement from our crypto users. As, as Dan has said, we see a, a very high increase in, in engagement with the app. And now we are also seeing it work the other way around. If you, as, as you know, we have very significantly now revamped the PayPal app and adding a, a, a number of new services in, in our strategy to become a, a super app. And what we are seeing now is one of the side effects is we are seeing the improvements in the super app drive more engagement on the crypto side. And we are seeing significant increases in crypto adoption in our base since we revamped the, the app. So it's one of the benefits of being in, in this ecosystem. There are network effects between different PayPal properties. And we see that on PayPal and when we go international, we see that when we light up the product on, on the Venmo side. And, and we see significant uh, effects on, on both sides. So the answer is, is yes. We are seeing both more engagement on the PayPal side, but also uh, activity on PayPal is driving more engagement for our crypto users. And when you talk about those features that are the super app features, what are those features? So the company has been uh, launching, uh, and we are in the process of rolling that out now, an environment where you can go to the PayPal app, you will see your traditional uh, payment activity that that you know and love about PayPal. But now we have made more visible our commerce properties and the ability to find deals in in the app. Your crypto activity is there. The rewards side is there. You can do your bill payment from the app. We we have announced that very quickly uh, we're going to be going live with a product that will provide high yield deposit savings. So it's more and more of a place where you can handle all your financial life in one unique place. Oh, that's fascinating. And so you're seeing that people on that who are transacting in that way then just get more engaged in crypto naturally. Indeed. And and you can see when we think about crypto and our role in the crypto ecosystem, there are three things where, where we think that that we can help. The first one is the, the one that I referred at the beginning, which is uh, we have a very massive distribution and, and we can help in providing access to, to crypto assets for users who are intrigued, but they are not experts and they don't know and they don't want to know what SHA-256 uh, cryptography is. They don't want to deal with a hardware wallet. They want to have a curated experience into crypto under the umbrella of a brand that, that they trust. So that, that access is the first part where we can help. The second part where we believe we can, we can uh, move the needle uh, is on providing more utility. I think that we all agree that these assets, if the only thing that we do is sit on them, they are less interesting. And, and the, the main point of interest is 
how they, we can make them useful in the real world. We are starting to do that through our distribution. As, as you might know, soon after we enable our buy, hold, and sell capability on, on the PayPal app, we enable a crypto checkout, which means that in your crypto, in your transactions uh, at PayPal, when you're paying with PayPal anywhere that PayPal is accepted, you can select as a funding instrument your bank account, your debit card, your credit card, your rewards, and you can select your crypto balance. So all of a sudden, uh, we have been talking about uh, payments with crypto for a long while. All of a sudden, if you carry crypto with us, you can pay in any of our millions of, of merchants. And we will settle with the merchant in fiat, so the merchant doesn't need to do anything. Uh, we, we believe that having that crypto offering in the middle of a commerce and payments experience with this distribution adds pretty massive utility to it. And then the third one is that we have been on a, on a regulated financial services player for a long while, and we are very happy to contribute uh, to the conversation around regulation on, on crypto. And, and also we are doing a lot of work around central bank digital currencies. You basically just covered all the topics that I want to get to in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, well, I do have a few more questions about this uh, user uptake. I did notice in the earnings that you said that, or PayPal said that the Venmo app began supporting crypto in April and that in the third quarter, you saw payment volume jump 36% in in Venmo to $60 billion. And I wondered, did it look like the introduction of crypto there had something to do with that big jump? Uh, I, I wouldn't say yes. Our introduction of crypto in Venmo is, is fairly recent, as you were saying, it's a few months back. We are seeing really, really high engagement from, from the Venmo demographic. Which is, uh, interestingly, you see different behavior patterns between the PayPal population and the Venmo population. I would not, I think that the Venmo team is doing a fantastic uh, work in, in growing the volume on the Venmo side. I would not claim any credit on the crypto side yet. I think that is, is uh, another feature that we are adding to, to Venmo, and we will be adding more. Uh, one thing where we are seeing more engagement on the Venmo side is we added, as you, know, as you might know, Venmo has a credit card a physical credit card that, that people can use that uh, to fund purchases with their uh, with their Venmo balance. And that credit card has a reward program. So one of the things that we introduced very recently is that users can choose to have their cash back from the Venmo card uh, denominated in, in the crypto of their choice, meaning that you are spending with your card, uh, you get your 2% and as opposed to getting $2 at the end of the month, if you spend 100, you can get $2 worth of any of the tokens that we support, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, or, or Litecoin. And we have seen that to be a fantastic feature that people love. And it's a really, really good first experience, as we said, for many folks who are curious about crypto, but they don't know about it. And this is like getting a, a, a free crypto in a way and, and removing all that uh, friction into a first experience. And so when you said that you're seeing different behaviors between the PayPal users and the Venmo users, what what kind of behavior are you seeing on the PayPal side? We see that uh, when when we look at investment amounts and transaction speeds, the, the Venmo demographic tend to skew younger. And we are seeing smaller transactions and, and, and faster uh, adoption in, in, in the curve. And I'm sorry, that was for the Venmo users, Venmo. you said? Oh, okay. For the Venmo users. And so in general, how do you view the PayPal and or Venmo users of crypto and how would you differentiate them from, for instance, the crypto customers at Coinbase or Robinhood or Square? I Well, I cannot tell you much about the, the crypto users at those other companies because I, I don't know their profiles, but we have gotten to know 
quite a bit about our uh, crypto user population. And it has been uh, actually surprising when we started, when we went live in, in October last year, uh, I think that my preconceived idea is that probably uh, crypto users on the PayPal side will maybe skew younger, or maybe skew more more affluent. And what we have seen, which I think is is good news for the prospects of crypto adoption as a mainstream instrument, is that actually they they cut across the board. I, I don't think that we can point to one specific demographic or socioeconomic segment that is more active in our side. We are seeing engagement uh, across the board. So I can tell you that our crypto population is actually a good reflection of our overall PayPal population uh, and not one specific segment, which I think, again, is, is fantastic news for, for our sector. And are you finding that the crypto offering has brought new customers to PayPal or Venmo, or is it just getting existing customers to buy crypto for the first time? There are some new ones, but most, as I said, our value prop is a lot about for people who know and trust the, the PayPal brand. So the, the, our typical adopter is someone who's comfortable using PayPal. They are using PayPal for their payment activity. They see that there is an offering on crypto and they have been crypto curious for a while and they tend to adopt more. So logically, we've only been in the market for about a year. So it makes sense for us that the, the early users tend to be more on the on the a PayPal population, and it's an engagement uh, activity more than a user acquisition activity. Okay, yeah, and but then it sounds like actually you guys are bringing new people to crypto. Very much so. Uh, when we do service of our users for a relevant percentage of them, we are their first crypto experience, which is fantastic. As, as we said, we, we care a lot about access and being able to add more and more users uh, to who become crypto adopters is something that, that we care a lot about. Okay. And so for users who, or for listeners who aren't aware, you have uh, Paxos's ItBit work all of that on the back end. So is, or do they take care of any hedging that happens when you're transac- transacting in what is a very <laughs> volatile environment and also one in which the value of these assets is increasing? Do they just take care of all of that for you? So uh, Paxos is, is our partners, you were saying, they're a fantastic uh, company. We're very happy with, with the partnership. They, they provide liquidity and, and custody to, to us. Uh, when, what happens when somebody's buying a crypto on the PayPal side, they will place the order with us. So the, the customer relationship is, is with us. We are not sending them uh, anywhere else. And then we're using our collaboration with Paxos to just to go to the market, acquire the crypto, and, and then keep that on, on the name of, of the user. We don't have at this stage, we don't carry crypto on the balance sheet of, of PayPal. It's a question that we get uh, quite often, as other companies have been using crypto for treasury purposes. Uh, we don't carry that on our, our balance sheet today. It might happen in the future if we need that uh, for operational purposes. One thing that we have learned also, and we have been telling uh, a lot of people in the space, is that when you operate on a payments environment, a payment is more than a transaction. So it's, it's something that is relatively straightforward when people want to send value from an Ethereum wallet to a different Ethereum wallet. When that is part of a payment transaction, there are many things beyond the value movement that come into play there. You need to deal with refunds and with disputes, and we need to deal with uh, the the payment stack on the merchant side and financial reporting. So it might be that in the course of our uh, payment activity, it makes sense for us to some of that uh, crypto on our balance for operations, not for investment. But at the moment, uh, we don't have that. And so why in this time when a lot of corporate, I don't know if a lot is really the word, but 
But a good number of companies have decided to add crypto to their balance sheets. Why has PayPal decided not to do that? Because again, from an operational point of view, we don't need it yet. And from an investment perspective, our treasury team is is deploying the, the funds in a different uh, strategies. But we don't uh, ha- we don't carry that, and we will probably not carry that for investment purposes. And part of the uh, we, we deploy our treasury as an operational instrument. And again, in our current construct, we don't need to have crypto on, on balance for operational purposes. Okay, so going back to the transactions, how has the fact that crypto transactions are not reversible changed the way that PayPal thinks about security, fraud, uh, and similar issues when it comes to executing those transactions, you know, versus obviously like a bank or a credit card transaction? That goes back to, to this very, very important point that a payment is, is more than, than, a, than a transaction. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time thinking about it uh, as uh, our product today exists inside the PayPal environment. When I say it exists inside the PayPal environment, it means that to transact in, in crypto with us, you, you buy the, the, the crypto from PayPal and when you want to sell it, you sell it back to PayPal. And when you're paying for a good or service uh, with your crypto balance, you are doing that with a PayPal merchant as well. So as long as all that, of course, inside the PayPal environment, all our usual product features apply. So there is buyer protection and seller protection and, and, and all those things. It's going to be a very interesting as we as we have announced a few months ago, when we enable on-chain transfers and the ability to withdraw crypto from your PayPal balance or, or bring it from an external wallet. All those things that you are saying very much come into, into effect. So we, we, it does have an impact on how we look at a transaction, which means that uh, we are very intent on how we're going to do, be doing transaction monitoring and validation of the merchants who are doing these transactions. It is, it is a different uh, ballpark than a traditional credit card transaction. And so for the first part of your answer, I did notice that if somebody buys using crypto, then there's a little note that says, you know, if you, end up returning this or reversing the charge, you'll you'll be refunded in the dollar value of the crypto at that time. So that's the reason why, because you're just using kind of your internal ledger for that. Is that yeah, and, and we are settling with with the merchant in fiat. So what is happening when we do, when you pay for crypto on a transaction at PayPal is we will sell the, the equivalent amount of your crypto balance. We will receive dollars in this case in the US and we will give dollars to the merchant, which means that you can totally refund your transaction. But, but your commitment with the merchant is in that dollar-denominated amount. And it's also tricky when you are operating in a highly volatile asset that, that you don't want to create an incentive in which people will buy with Bitcoin and then Bitcoin goes up 30% in value and then uh, people have an incentive to say, hey, I, I want to cancel my transaction and I want my Bitcoin back. In that we, we want to make sure that it is uh, more useful and easier to transact with, but the moment that you are locking that value for a commerce transaction, then you are locking that value. Yeah. Yeah. This goes back to obviously, um, for instance, things like the Bitcoin pizza that now would be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Once a refund on their pizza. Exactly. Um, so in terms of that ability to withdraw a, some crypto that some, a user bought on PayPal to their own wallet is uh, kind of the the not the holdup, but but the thing that you're working to uh, develop further would be these security and fraud 
I guess, protections in order to release that kind of capability? We will make it easy for people to send uh, that to to other wallets. Obviously, it will be different in when they are using that for a commerce uh, for a commercial transaction. They want to pay with Bitcoin at, at some other commerce where there is a PayPal flow, or they just want to take it to a hardware uh, to a hardware wallet. So, in in, in commercial transactions, our uh, protections uh, do apply on a transaction where you are withdrawing a crypto because you want to put it in, in your wallet. Basically, we, we want to make it easy for you to do it. But it's not really a refund there because it is, it is not a payment. You're just moving your value around. And I do. I did also notice that the crypto page in PayPal at the moment says that if uh, people's account is hacked, that PayPal will replace their crypto. And I was wondering how that was going because hacks are kind of a dime a dozen in crypto. There's all kinds of phishing scams and other types of scams. So wh- why did PayPal decide to do that? And are you finding that uh, there's kind of a lot of <laughs> usage of that feature. Uh, so PayPal, one of my colleagues likes to say that that we present as a payments company, but we are very much a cybersecurity company that happens to to deal in, in value. <laughs> so we have been in in this business for a for a very long time. As, as you know, you were referring uh, the activity of the company. We are uh, around a trillion in TPV worldwide every year. So we are very used to keeping the money of our users safe. And crypto is an, uh, is an extension of that. Uh, yes, it's, a, it's an important commitment. We stand by, by our commitment. I think there's a very important part of our promise to the users that they can trust us. And if something happens to the uh, account, we will stand by them. Wow. Okay. That, that's quite a promise. Um, so for a long while now, there's been chatter that PayPal may launch its own stablecoin, which you have denied in the past We've seen, obviously, there is another large company that has been attempting to do this, which is Facebook. And disclosure, I do write a newsletter for them. But watching what has happened to Facebook's efforts with DM, particularly in terms of the reception from regulators, how does that affect PayPal's own plans or even thoughts in this area? Uh, so first of all, it's, it's too early for us to be discussing a specific plans on, on the space, but I'm, but I'm very happy to to have a few ideas of how we are seeing the, the world. You were talking about DM and talking about the regulatory uh, environment. It's obviously a very, very active moment now in the, in the discussion around regulation of, of stable coins. And it feels like we, we have part of the blessing of, of uh, operating a platform that is live in 200 countries, is that we are in a position to see what's going on in different parts of the world. What I see is, in terms of stable representations of value, right, which would include both CBDCs and, and stable coins, it feels like the world is evolving in, in, in three directions. On, on the one side, you see something like is the, the China model, meaning hey, these representations of value will be uh, issued by, by the central bank. So you have the, the electronic uh, yuan, you have ECNY uh, issued by, by the People's Bank of, of China, and that is one model. So no private stable coins, uh, central bank money. You have the, the, the recommendation that was issued by the presidential working group uh, a few days ago, where basically they, they are thinking of something that, that I would call more like deposit stable coins. So they're, they're, make it, they're taking an approach in which there are some characteristics of deposits of stable coins that liken them to a bank deposit. And so a stable coin issuer should be basically a bank. They say an insured depository institution. And then there is a model in which uh, which is maybe where Europe is going, 
that they're talking about e-money stable coins. Uh, so this is not a banking deposit. This is kind of a store of value. It's an electronic store of value. And then you can be an e-money institution or a payments company and issue a, a stable coin. I think that those those three approaches can coexist. Uh, it's unclear on which the, how different regions are going to go uh, in in one way or or the other. And, and that's part of the debate that I think that we will see happening over the next uh, months and maybe maybe even years. How that uh, evolves, I think, is going to be an important part of which companies will be willing and able to do to do what. We do believe, and we see that part of uh, of the requests that that we hear from our clients is that there is a demand for these uh, digital representations of value that are stable. We believe that they are a fundamental part of both digital assets becoming more mainstream, but also being more accepted for commerce and payments. We have been very very vocal that we want to be uh, supportive of CBDCs when they are available. Uh, Dan Schulman, our CEO, has spoken about that. We are quite active in the space. Uh, we are uh, collaborating in the task force that the Bank of England and the Treasury in the UK have put together to think about uh, how a digital pound will look like. We are part of the MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, where, where we contribute uh, engineering time to developing. Because one of the things that we see, specifically in the CBDC space, is the, the the ratio of PowerPoint written to code written is very heavily skewed toward the PowerPoint, and we want to contribute to the to the code base. Um, so the, it, we think that stablecoins again are a fascinating space, which is really 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 important uh, that that it gets regulated in an appropriate way in which consumers and merchants can have the right guarantees and investor uh, protections. Uh, and there is a prevention of illicit finance in a way that also is not stifling the, the innovation in the segment. And so it sounds like you, you know, aren't necessarily, at least at this moment, interested in PayPal issuing its own stablecoin that you kind of want to play in all these different areas. I'm sure you're well aware there are a lot of commentators who have said that it would probably make a lot of sense for PayPal to do something like that. Is there something uh, kind of in the regulatory world or maybe in uh, like a type of business opportunity you'd have to see or something in the infrastructure or or something else that would finally, uh, you know, have that make sense for PayPal? Uh, I, I Not about, again, not specifically about PayPal ourselves issuing something or adopting something that is in the market. I think that for for that to happen, especially for even thinking about adopting one of the stable coins that are already out there, uh, there are a couple of things that, that would need to happen. On, on our side, as you know, we are very much a commerce and payments company. We care about commerce and payments uh, use cases. And the stable coins that we see on the market today, and I'm sure that the the, the audience of of Unchain is uh, are very adept at using stablecoins in their in their daily lives. Most of those use cases are mostly for trading or for DeFi uh, protocols. And and if you think about stablecoins deployed on on Ethereum, they are a fantastic use case. Uh, if you're going to do a few transactions of a large volume, for our use cases, we are much more interested in uh, being able to support 10 million transactions of ten dollars each, more than 10 transactions of 10 million each. Uh, so we need Two things to happen in, in the in the in the space. We have not seen a stablecoin out there that is purpose built for payments yet. Uh, we see a lot of activity in some of the new protocols, and we are uh, our engineering teams are doing 
keeping a close eye on how some of these layer new layer one protocols or uh, the layer two evolution on, on on top of Ethereum that will support the throughput and scalability that you need for payments at scale. And the, so the technology getting ready and in, especially in terms of security throughput and scalability is one aspect. The other aspect, as we just uh, discussed in the in the in the prior question, is that the, the, there is clarity on the regulation and, and what are the regulatory frameworks and the type of licenses that are needed in this space. And so earlier when you were talking about the scalability issues for stablecoins that you might adopt, are there any particular layer twos or any particular chains in general that look especially promising or, or scaling technologies that you're especially interested in? We have been doing uh, obviously quite a bit of work on, on, on Ethereum in general for many of our use cases. As, as you know, this is such a fluid space that doesn't, uh, that if I give you names today, then those names will be different six months from, from now. Uh, we have been anything that supports interoperability uh, is relevant for us. So we have been quite intrigued by things like, like Polkadot. We have been quite intrigued. We have been very impressed with the way that, that Solana, the Solana ecosystem has been, has been growing. We have been quite impressed with uh, the growth around Algorand. I guess that one of the things that, that we keep an eye on is, we tend to follow developers, so we, we see interest from the developer ecosystem and, and developers spending time uh, is is where we think that that good things can happen, and and we steer our engineering teams who are working in the space towards those same areas. I'm sure that if you ask me six weeks from now, I could give you four or five <laughs> different names. Is is how exciting this environment is. Yes, I totally understand. Welcome to my world as a journalist who, you know, can't, definitely can't keep up. Not that anybody can. Um, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. No, this is fascinating because as you saw from my question, you know, I was thinking it was, um, certain other issues that might hold you up on that. But of course, I hadn't thought about the scaling issue, which of course is what everybody's talking about now. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about central bank digital currencies, regulatory issues, and other things. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first 30 days. With Crypto.com Earn, you can get industry-leading interest rates of up to 8.5% on over 40 coins, including Bitcoin, and earn up to 14% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. With Nodal Cash, you can earn crypto on your mobile device for free with no hardware to purchase. You just download the Nodal Cash app, turn on your Bluetooth, and start earning. Nodal Cash is private, secure, and easy to earn, whether you're on the go, stuck in traffic, or even while you're sleeping. You can even repurpose your old smartphones to earn Nodal Cash. Visit nodal.io slash unchained to get started. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash unchained. Join the Citizen Network to earn crypto on your smartphone 24-7. Back to my conversation with Jose. So CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, have been coming up throughout this conversation. As I'm sure you're aware, Fed Chair Jerome Powell 
Economist did say uh, this past summer that one of the reasons for the Fed to create a CBDC would be that then stablecoins wouldn't be necessary. I know that you've said you think stablecoins and CBDCs will coexist. So can you talk a little bit about more how you see that space developing? Absolutely. And I think that there's no reason. If if you look at, if you work by analogy with what we have today, we have electronic money. So there are balances. People have their PayPal balance and and balances in other other wallets, which are built on top of uh, fiat money or money that is deposited in in banks. There is no reason why the same analogy does not exist uh, to the uh, stablecoin world. I do believe that we will see stablecoins that are backed by, by fiat money that is deposited in commercial banks. And I do think that we will see stablecoins that are backed by, by, by CBDCs when there is a CBDC out there. Uh, when you think thinking about what central banks are, are doing and what they're trying to optimize for, in general terms, they're thinking of CBDCs as uh, an instrument that can be advantageous for financial stability and financial inclusion. And it's more likely than not that it's going to be, by design, it's going to be uh, issued centrally because it has to be issued by, by the central bank. I'm a, from a technology point of view, I think it's relatively unlikely that they will deploy those assets on, on, on public blockchains. So if you are thinking about what are the implications, who is going to, the, the moment that, let's imagine that there is a digital dollar or a digital pound or a digital euro that is issued by the central banks in those regions. And developers and, and companies want to use that for, for payments or for decentralized finance or for other aspects. It's very unlikely that the, the Fed or the Bank of England are going to deploy a digital euro, a digital pound or a digital dollar on Ethereum. So somebody will do that, that work. And you can think of a, a stable coin backed by a CBDC as kind of a wrapped version of that CBDC. It's obviously a different claim. So the CBDC, the main uh, aspect of it is that it's a claim on the central bank, that you can take your CBDC and go to the central bank and get your, your money. But it can also be used as a reserve for a private stable coin that then can be deployed across all these protocols that we have been discussing, which I, I don't think that the central banks are going to go be doing that directly. All right. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see all of that plays out. Um, one other thing was you did talk about how you're working with um, some of the digital dollar efforts. Can you talk a little bit more about what you see as the main issues there that need to be resolved before such a, you know, a digital dollar could be issued? It's, it's an extremely complicated uh, project to work on, which takes me back to my comment on, on we believe that it's, it's, it's a good moment to start moving from PowerPoint to, to the code because you will only surface some of those problems as, as uh, codes go in. Part of the conversation these days is still relatively high level, right? So the, if you follow the, the discussion around stable coins, is still a lot of that is about, is it going to be a two-tier system or a one-tier system, meaning that is the central bank going to distribute directly to the public or is it going to go through distributors who must be regulated financial institutions or telcos or, or others? Those are still, they are foundational discussions and principles that will impact the development. But when you start to get into the, into the nitty gritty of it, there are many, many detailed questions that, that yet, uh, that, that, uh, that will need to be solved. For instance, one of the things that we, we keep scratching our heads is in an environment where there is a CBDC that, a CBDC that is issued and that you carry that in a wallet in your cell phone. What happens if the network is, is down? What happens if there is no mobile connectivity? What happens if there is no... Uh, how do you update the ledger? Because one of the requirements is that you should be able to transact 
in any circumstances similar like you transact with the phys- with physical cash today and that is not just only one one example other discussion that is very uh, lively and relevant is privacy around stable coins so what is the the presumption of privacy if you're interacting with a with a with a form of money that is issued by by the government and there is a central ledger there are ways to address that but those are both policy and technology conversations that still need to happen I am very, very optimistic that we will see uh, digital money issued by central banks, but also I believe that this is going to play over uh, a number of years. I don't think that this is something that we're going to see in six or nine or, or 12 months. Yeah. And about the privacy question, what do you think will end up being the most likely way that that's handled? Because I know a lot of people working on this uh, you know, have talked about uh, that as kind of one of the main questions. And as I'm sure people are well aware, um, a lot of the criticism of the digital yuan is that it's almost like a surveillance tool. So I'm sure, you know, people would, or central banks, you know, like, like, uh, here in the U.S. or in other democratic countries would, you know, be sensitive to that concern. Uh, I'm sure that that will be the case. And there are technical ways in which we can uh, enable that, that privacy. I think that we all, Think that privacy is a good thing, and think that uh, anonymity might be a, a different thing. So there are, as we say, it's important to have controls in place that prevent illicit finance activity going through these instruments. So there, there have to be ways in which in which you need to be able to monitor that activity and prevent that activity from happening. Uh, but there are ways in which you can enable flows where the data is stored in different places, the access rights are, are different. The technology will be there. I think that we still need to have, or, or the, the the central banks need to have the, the policy debates as well on how the, there will be a menu of options and you will be enabled more or less uh, privacy. I don't think that the technology is going to be a barrier for, for that. So another theme that has been coming up throughout the conversation is regulatory issues. I'm sure you're well aware that that is probably one of the biggest topics on everybody's mind, especially in the crypto community in the U.S. And to my mind, one of the biggest uh, core tensions is this issue of whether or not to apply regulations that have been built for a model that uses intermediaries to crypto, which obviously the uh, purpose of it is to replace intermediaries with software. Some people are advocating that there be new regulations. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that there are some regulations or, or some guidance on regulations already that is kind of pushing for crypto to keep the model using intermediaries. What do you think is the best approach? I know you're very active also on this, contributing to that World Economic Forum report on regulation. Yeah, so I, I think that there are a few things that are relevant here. First, for the ecosystem to develop and for digital assets to become mainstream, there has to be regulation of the space. I think that is important, that there is clarity. And if you talk to many actors in the space, when they're thinking about jumping in or adopting more broadly, part of the deterrent is, hey, we don't know how the regulation of, of this environment is going to be. So regulation is a prerequisite for this sector that, that we love and, and believe that has a ton of promise to, to flourish and, and develop. So it has to happen. Your, your question explicitly on do we need a new framework or can, can we adjust the, the existing framework? I think that the little experience is that we have so far, because this has happened in a, in a short amount of time, is that the places that have developed specific frameworks for this have been more successful in driving that innovation. If you think on 
the maybe the most prominent example in the in the US is New York with their virtual currency framework and, and the famous bid licenses where there is there might be uh, people in favor or against but there is clarity so you know understand you understand where what you need to comply with maybe an, an international equivalent of that is the is Germany where there is a, they went exactly in, in in the way that that you were suggesting in your question or, or stating in your question which is hey this is not exactly the same instruments that we have seen in the past and it's not just about fitting these new instruments into the old regulation because that would be a little bit of the of the square peg in the round hole maybe we need to make sure that there is a new framework developed for this and that is informing the mica regulation in, in europe uh, and it's also part of the recommendation that the presidential working group uh, was was issuing a, a few days ago where they're saying hey we it, it looks like we need new uh, a new uh, framework for this and, and they were requesting from Congress to issue legislation here. Uh, it, it feels to me that there are places that will benefit a lot from, from being purpose-built for the specificities of digital assets. It doesn't mean that we need to start everything from, uh, from scratch. If you are in the U.S., there are very good instruments that are already in place, both from the state uh, regulatory system and the federal regulatory system that might be very applicable to, to what we are all uh, trying to do. But these assets are, are different. And working by analogy might, might help us at the beginning, but there's going to be a moment in which these digital assets start to have use cases that are not just working by analogy and are totally brand new use cases. And the existing framework might not be as easy to adapt. Hmm. Okay, yeah, we'll see how this plays out because I'm sure you're well aware that uh, there are definitely people in the government, both regulators and uh, I think legislators who seem to uh, believe the opposite, that the existing frameworks apply. Um, so another area, you know, that sort of brings a new frontier to things is that crypto networks, uh, you know, kind of offer things like interest if you offer services on the network, such as staking or lending crypto. Does PayPal ever see that its offering would allow users the opportunity to participate in things like that? We we are considering what we should doing in a world where where uh, that moves more and more toward proof of stake. What is the best way to provide access for for that? We have not uh, formal plans uh, about it yet, but we see not only in terms of of staking, but uh, as the environment moves from asset accumulation, if you want, to asset to uh, to the management of those assets, and what is the prov- the ability to both derive returns from those assets but also participates in the in the ecosystem is a demand that that the public will will have so we need to we need to be ready to to address that we don't have a formal plans on it yet but we are seeing that as more and more something that will be relevant in the in the midterm maybe even in the short term and similarly other centralized crypto companies like coinbase robinhood they're also developing non-custodial or self-hosted wallets for crypto users. Does PayPal ever see that it would also create products like that? We believe that it's important that 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 users can move their their crypto outside the PayPal ecosystem, and that's why we announced that we were gonna be, we are going to be enabling uh, transfers from from their PayPal wallet to crypto wallets that they host outside. And it feels to me that that's like 90% of the functionality that you would have with an unhosted wallet. 
most of our users, what we are seeing is part of the reason that they are interacting with us is because they like the trust of the, of the PayPal side. So they they are they don't want to get into the complexity of handling their own uh, digital keys or, or or their own private keys. So we don't see a ton of demand on our side for us to offer a standalone wallet. We believe that we can provide that connectivity to the protocols and the rest of the ecosystem by enabling on-chain transfers from the wallet that we have today. Okay, so but if demand, if there was demand from your customers, you would consider doing something like that. Or? Our product roadmap is very much driven by the demand from our consumers. So when 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 the environment changes, we definitely adapt to to that, and it's one of those where you can say never say never. Uh, but it's not something that we are seeing right now. Okay, and so uh, you know about this ethos of decentralization and also participation. What role do you see centralized companies such as PayPal playing? We are, you know, I'm sure you're aware, seeing that some companies are doing things like participating in governance of decentralized networks. Would PayPal ever consider doing something like that? Decentralization is something that obviously is very is very core to the to the ethos of of the system. But but decentralization is not a binary state. So there are different degrees of of decentralization. We want to support the decentralized environment. We think that is uh, we think that the benefit and uh, of of this is that is built on, on open source. We don't think that is on our role to be to be relevant actors in the governance of a specific protocols. I mean, we thought that actually is not our role to play, and probably would be perceived by the community as. I, I in my conversations to the community, I don't think that they feel like the place of corporates is uh, being very involved in the governance of these uh, protocols. We want to enable our users who choose, who choose to work with that with us to be able to exercise the, the, the rights, but I don't see ourselves being very active in the governance of any of these protocols anytime soon. We want to support it, and we think, again, as, as we said, that decentralization doesn't mean that is a, that doesn't mean atomization. It means that there is no, there is no central point of view. Oh, PayPal, by design, obviously, we are a corporation, we are a centralized entity. Coinbase is a centralized entity, and Robinhood is a, is a centralized entity. So we think that there is... The, the push towards decentralization happens when you are able to make the cost of contracting cheaper. So the, the, one of the reasons I, I keep saying that I, the, the, the reason that I, that I work at PayPal is because it would be really, really cumbersome to show up at the office every day or at our remote office and negotiate a contract about what I'm going to be doing that day and then do that again and again and again. Is that that cost of contracting that pushes towards centralization? So there is an advantage in centralization. What is important is that we have the right degree of centralization that supports uh, all that activity and that there is not a high level of concentration. So there will be, again, I think that we should discuss between decentralization, and uh, which is a beneficial and full-blown atomization, which might be something that we are far from. Yeah, no, I, I think um, what you're talking about is it kind of spot on with some of the feeling in the community, because I think it, I think this was for the ENS governance token. I did see, I, I think it, I, I'll make a correction if, if it wasn't this, if it was a different project, but Coinbase was named a delegate. And I did see some commentary on Twitter, like, why would you delegate to Coinbase? And, you know, kind of people criticizing that. So I think you're right that there is some sensitivity around centralized corporations, but I find it fascinating that they are participating. Um, and, you know, Andreessen also did publish something about how it's thinking about participating in governance. So clearly this is this is a question. Um, so one other thing that uh, I found fascinating was your CEO has talked about some problems of the legacy financial system, saying that 
it can be more expensive for poorer people to use and cheaper for wealthier people to use. And I know earlier in your career, you were head of emerging markets at PayPal. And I wondered what opportunities you saw for crypto and for PayPal through its crypto offerings to address those kinds of issues. As you were saying, we are a company that has financial inclusion at, at heart. And, and, and Dan Schulman, our CEO, and, and all the company think very, very uh, strongly, feel very strongly uh, about it. I do believe, and one of the reasons that drove me uh, to the space was this promise about the ability to help with financial inclusion and especially creating financial opportunity in, in emerging markets. It's a nuanced uh, question, though. I'll, I'll tell you what I do think that I, that I see impact now and where I see impact in the future. I think that in the short term, where these instruments are going to be uh, most effective is in helping on the on the small business side and, and supporting uh, entrepreneurs and companies in these markets who can accept payments for abroad uh, at a lower cost and, and, and faster. One, I, I, when I was, as you were saying in the past, in my capacity as, as head of emerging markets strategy for PayPal, but also running the, our business in, in the South American markets, Spanish-speaking markets, I've seen firsthand the impact that we can have for a small merchant that is running a scuba diving school in Costa Rica and he wants to accept payments from tourists in the U.S. And their local bank is going to charge them hundreds of dollars per month to accept credit cards. And the travelers from the U.S. don't want to give them their credit card number because they don't know the merchant on the other side. So for that, when you can enable either through CBDCs or deposit stable coins, C-money stable coins, you name it. But if you can provide a way in which that business can uh, export more and get more business uh, and get more revenue by adopting digital currencies, I, I, that's where I see the short-term impact on, on financial inclusion and opportunity in emerging markets first. A lot of the conversation around digital assets and cryptocurrency in the context of emerging economies has been more about remittances and, and how you can send funds from the U.S. to Kenya and people can receive that on a, on a mobile wallet. That exists. What we have not been able to solve yet is the last mile. So imagine that I can send uh, funds from the, from the U.S. to my family in Kenya and, and the people will receive that in a mobile wallet. But if they still have, if that value that I have sent them, if they cannot use it, uh, widely in the market and still they need to go to a cash agent in Kenya to convert that digital value into cash because that's what they can use in, uh, in their day to day, then we still have 80% of the cost there. Basically, we reduced the cost of the long haul, which is not where the problem was, and we still have the problem of the, of the last mile. Uh, that's why, for instance, things like what is going on in, in Nigeria, when, when we have a CBDC that is issued by a central bank in one of these markets, and that CBDC can be legal tender, meaning that you that that the public will be more used and uh, to interact in digital value, and merchants will be accepting that, so that you don't have that intermediate and expensive step of converting into cash. That is where where that is the prerequisite that we need for the consumer side of emerging markets. In, in because then is then is different. Then I can send any stable coin to that wallet in Kenya or in Nigeria, and they can either use it directly or, or convert it into a digital token that is accepted in the market. But until that last mile of acceptance is implemented in the market, I think that the consumer uh, part of it will, will take a little bit to develop. And so I'm sorry, you're saying that it would need to be a stable coin in the local fiat currency. 
in order for that acceptance. It's accepted in this digitally native uh, form. I think that we we need to have acceptance in the day-to-day of non-cash, non-physical cash forms of value for that to work. Yeah, yeah. I've seen crypto people talk about how uh, you know, when people talk about stable coins, they're typically just talking about US dollar peg stable coins. And I- I've noticed when I interview sources in Europe or Asia or whatever, they will, they will say, Oh, at that time, the, the value of Bitcoin or Ether was X. And they quote it to me in US dollars, not their local currency. So it's, it's fascinating that, yeah, um, right now, uh, in the crypto world. Payments are very, very local. And one thing that happens with, I, I, I live in Silicon Valley. Part of, sometimes you see the perspective from Silicon Valley is a little bit uh, simplistic in that sense and assuming that every, that is the, that word you're going to invent from here is going to, is going to apply everywhere. Uh, those components that you're saying. So local currencies, local regulation, uh, the local last mile and the, the distribution network and the merchant network of those digital currencies. They are issues that are quite frankly, not technology issues. Some of them are, are business issues or they are policy issues, but you need to be able to, for that to be to be effective, even in the case of mobile money, M-Pesa in Kenya is always uh, highlighted as the success uh, story for non-crypto, but mobile money. But even when you look at other cases in, in, in Africa, Kenya is a little bit of the outlier. So M-Pesa has been very successful there, but mobile wallets in other markets have been less uh, successful. So we are we are all making steps toward the main goal, but I think that I see short term impact uh, on the business side before I see that on the on the consumer side in these markets. Yeah, so we'll have to see how all this plays out. Uh, I feel like you know the the ideal of crypto is all this democratization, and um, we haven't seen too much of it yet. <laughs> Um, but something that is all the rage now is NFTs and the metaverse. Um, you know, I just thought I would throw this out there. I don't know how PayPal might get involved, but do you see a role for PayPal or would you just limit yourself to kind of the financial areas of crypto? Oh, I, I totally see a role for us in, in, in NFTs. And it's, it's interesting, as, as we discussed at the very beginning, we've been on, on the PayPal side working on this maybe for the last three or four years. I, I've been in the space maybe for the last uh, six. And I have to say that NFTs is one of those that grew way faster than, than, I, than I expected it to, to grow. It feels like it was only, uh, only one year ago we were thinking about it as something that, yes, it will happen eventually at some point in time, and then all of a sudden the, the, the storm unleashed. And, and I think that we're just at the very, very beginning of, of it. I personally have really, really uh, high hopes and high expectations that it will extend way beyond what we are seeing today in terms of collectibles and, and arts and art. And we will see digital tokens that can unlock experiences in the real world, whether they are uh, that your uh, ticket to a concert is issued as a, as a non-fungible token or any other of a zillion use cases that the developers are hard working at. What do we see as pain points and, and places like where, where we can contribute? Again, in, in the spirit, the, the, in the spirit of how we built our initial retail product in, in terms of making a, a, easy, a, a easy experience for a non-sophisticated user to begin with, I think that applies very much to buying an NFT today. The experience of buying an NFT today is the number of hoops that you need to go through. So you need to know that, let's use the, the ERC 20 case. You need to know that you, you need to buy Ether, and then you need to get that Ether into a MetaMask wallet, and then you need to go into an NFT mar- uh, marketplace, <laughs> and then you need to buy something. 
uh, there. And then your token exists in some version and, and you don't really know what to do with it. You said, and then you get rug pulled. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So th th that goes to the protection side as well. So th that is something that is definitely on the on the early adopter side. It's not yet a mainstream experience for, for a curious but not sophisticated user. So I think that we definitely have a role to play on, on how do we enable a seamless payment experience for NFTs. I think that's something that, that we feel like we have a role to play. Many of our uh, merchants and partners, and, and especially on the on the media sector, they are asking for that. Is say, hey, can you please make it easy for our users to engage with these with these NFTs? And then the other part of it is same that it, that it impacts to the to payments impacts to the custody. So how can people interact with those uh, NFTs and where are they go, going to to live? So it's something that we are monitoring very closely. We think there is a space. For us, there is a very, very rapidly developing uh, system uh, ecosystem, uh, and we are in the very early stages. But definitely, we feel like we have a role to play there. Yeah, yeah. I guess now that I think about it, of course, I did have someone from Visa on my show, uh, Kai Sheffield, the head of crypto there, and he also talked about it. And so it does make sense. And yeah, I started imagining all kinds of partnerships you might do. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of future things or things coming down the pike, I'm sure the listeners will be curious, when are you going to add new cryptos and how are you deciding which ones to add? So when, when we started, we wanted to make sure that, that again, that we were capturing a significant part of the uh, market cap of crypto, and we, and, but also that we were, that made sure that the assets that we were putting in front of our users were of, of very high quality. And, and, uh, we, and we consider that we, uh, that we have uh, this responsibility of providing a curated experience. In the short year that we have been in the market, I think that we all have seen that a lot of the growth in the markets has gone out, has happened outside the traditional uh, tokens out there. So what, what the industry calls Bitcoin dominance has decreased significantly. Uh, we expect obviously that Bitcoin will will continue to be there uh, for a long time, but we are seeing a ton of growth outside uh, those uh, more traditional tokens. If, if, so and, and we see that that demand from our consumers. So people want to see more tokens on their on their PayPal wallet. So we will be looking into that. It's something that that again, as as I say, we are our broad roadmap is very much driven by our consumer requests. And the best way to influence our broad roadmap is to reach out and say, hey, we would like to see to see this. Uh, it's very important on 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 our side that that again that when we make the decision to add additional tokens that they are of very high quality and, and, a, and a really high standard. So we're going to have a very high bar. I don't expect that you're never going to be, that, that PayPal will never be the place where you go and see 150 different tokens. We want to make sure that, <laughs> that we can address uh, the main themes uh, and that we can, uh, again, take care of our users as, as they explore what they want to do next. So you're not going to try to take on Uniswap or anything like that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I want to talk about it. You take uh, assets. Uh, but but it is but but we see that we see the demand from our users. Say hey, we we love what we see, and we would love to see uh, more and and a, and, a, and a larger offering of of tokens on the app. So, what is your vision for what PayPal's crypto offerings will look like? Maybe let's say three to five years from now. I was trying to figure out if you had asked me that question three years ago, I, I would not have been speaking about CBDCs and NFTs and things like that because I don't think any of <laughs> were speaking about about that. Uh, I think that we we need to be open minded and, and humble in first in our role in the system and on how how much do we know because it, it, 
I have no idea, but whether three or five years from now, we are going to be talking about decentralized computing and all the rates is going to be how you can be processing uh, or whether we are going to be talking about a federated identity or, or what is going to be the next uh, the next bend of, of the road. What I know is that uh, that we are here to stay. So we are a company that cares uh, a lot about financial inclusion and opportunity. And we think that these uh, assets are a, a fundamental part of driving that. In the next wave, we think that is a really int- intriguing opportunity to actually uh, have significant payment activity in, in, on new rails, whether that's on CBDCs or private stable coins or, or something else, which is very close and very core to our, to our business. Uh, and we believe that that also that identity is going to be a very important part of that and, and that we have a role to play around digital identity as, as well. So if, if you were to ask me, I think that in addition to NFTs, CBDCs, stablecoin and, and all of that, the places where the, the, one of the places that I'm the most intrigued about these days is, is digital identity and how that is going to play in a, in a decentralized world. Oh, that's fascinating. And it's so basically you're, you, you think that maybe PayPal would, yeah, would kind of basically offer some kind of digital identity for its users. Uh, I, I don't know how it would look like. Again, is is three to five years is uh, from now is a different planet. But but this is one one place where where I think that we see a, a demand again from from consumers, but also from regulators and also from from merchants. So somebody will need. I don't think that five years from now, when you want to have a transaction in in two wallets, what we're gonna do is to send someone. A, inordinate number of characters of a wallet on protocol X or protocol Y. There has to be some type of interoperability and portability of, of credentials that you can use to identify your, yourself. And just jumping off from that, I did want to maybe circle back to this super app vision for PayPal. Um, and I don't remember how clearly we defined it earlier in the show, but you know, this is kind of the the vision of something like a WeChat, but here in the West, where it would support messaging, saving, shopping, et cetera. And one thing, you know, when I was thinking about that, I was also thinking about how in crypto, as I'm sure you're aware, things are very community driven, sometimes almost a little bit religious. And I'm sure you're, you know, aware that a lot of crypto communities will congregate in different telegram groups or in discord channels. And I wondered how you saw that kind of like cultural aspect of crypto uh, maybe, or or how you saw PayPal as the super app kind of capitalizing on that cultural aspect of crypto. Again, I think that this goes back to, to our uh, humility. I, we, we have the, the utmost of respects for the community. I, I don't think that, that we want to interfere with the community. We're here to, to serve the community and to listen to, to it. If the community chooses to go and, and interact with PayPal on a messaging a service that happens on the PayPal side, fantastic. But part of the benefit of that cultural aspect of crypto is that the community will generate use cases that that I am not able to think about and PayPal will not think about and corporates will, will not think about. So they bring a totally different lens there. I think that our role there is to listen to what they have to say and, and to amplify their, their voice uh, and, and provide them with the tools and the, and the infrastructure. I think that actually I'm, I'm really interested in on, on what we can do on the technical work to make sure that we provide the tools for developers and that we can able to provide the right environment and the right security for them to build uh, crypto products on top of what we can offer. Uh, and if they choose to to use us from a retail perspective, that is fantastic. But they are the ones who are driving the system forward. 
All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Where can people learn more about you and PayPal? There, there are a number of uh, places that where you can learn more about us. There are landing pages on the crypto side. We obviously we have grown our team significantly over the last year, and, and we have spending quite a bit of time on in outreach and and finding uh, candidates and explaining our stories. So everybody can reach us on on our uh, landing pages on our reports, and we are more and more uh, present in, in the media as, as we continue to to develop what we think are uh, worthy efforts to push the ecosystem forward. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jose and PayPal, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.